speaker. Our curate, uh, Kate Middleton, she is an exceptional speaker. It's, it's such a signing for St. Matthias to have Kate. Um, and um, she's, uh, we're continuing our Is God series. I'll let Kate introduce this morning's talk. Let's give it up for Kate this morning. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. That's fabulous. And we are indeed continuing this, our series this morning, looking at some of the tough questions that we so often wrestle with as uh, people of God. And um, before I really start thinking about today's question, which is not the easiest of the ones we're looking at, which is, is God violent? Just a pause before we start the clock and count this as the beginning of the actual sermon. Just to pause and think, why are we doing this? Why are we starting our year asking some of these tough questions? And the thing is, it's good for us to recognize that as people of God, as people of faith or exploring faith, that it's good to ask questions. Sometimes we can be afraid to do that. We, we fear what might be on the other side of some of these difficult questions, but it's good for us to know that our oh, God is big enough. Our faith can be big enough. And when we ask questions and we dig deeper into some of these tough, tough topics, what we do is we deepen our faith and we gain more knowledge of the character and love of God. So it's a really good thing to do. And we know these are questions that people are asking in the church, but also people are asking outside of church that often stop people coming and exploring faith. But there is a bit of a health warning, particularly with this morning's topic, because this series can make your head spin. We are opening your minds to some difficult questions, and we're being honest. Sometimes there aren't clear, tidy, simple answers. You'll see a thread running through this whole series, which is about how do we hold and manage mystery? How do we understand as people stuff that is of God that's from a mind so far beyond our own? And, you know, my top tip for faith would be beware of certainty. Sometimes the people who will give you the most certain answers are oversimplifying things or maybe haven't dug in with a great depth. So it's good to explore and recognize. Sometimes we don't get a really binary, simple answer, but that's not something to be afraid of. Our admission and our holding of mystery is part of the things that we're exploring in this series. But let's think about today's topic. So start the clock. Is God violent? Today, I want to take you through three of the main frameworks that some of the scholars and theologians and sort of experts, wise people have used to approach this tricky topic. And what we're doing is trying to understand how we approach the violence in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. So I'm going to share with you these three approaches and some of my own reason. But I would commend you after this morning to chat more over lunch, later over a coffee, join one of our groups and spend some time with other people digging into this more because I'm sure there will be things that you'll be pondering and reflecting on as you come out of the service today. But let's kick off with today's passage. So we're going to read a classic familiar story from the Old Testament, one of our Sunday school uh, favorites. It's in Genesis, right near the start of the Old Testament. If you're following along on your phone or on a Bible, we are going to start in chapter 6, verse 11, and then we'll jump around just
us to follow the main themes of the story. So Genesis 6, starting at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Everything that had the breath of life was wiped out. Interestingly, the uh, children in their groups this morning are studying the story of Noah. Parents in the room will be glad to hear we won't be emphasizing the everything being wiped out. When we tell this story to the children, we tend to focus more on, you know, the animals two by two, don't we? But this is actually just one example of quite extreme violence, the wiping out of whole generations of people in the Old Testament. And in books like Deuteronomy and Joshua, if you read those accounts of the Israelites, the people of God, journeying into this land of Canaan that God had given them, as they capture cities, their practice seems to be to destroy every living thing. You see an example on the screen from Joshua 6 where they devote a city to the Lord and as part of that devotion, they kill every living thing in that city. So why? Why do they do this? Could this practice, this this habit that we would use and people do use phrases like ethnic cleansing or even genocide to describe, could this possibly come from God? There is a suggestion in the Old Testament that it does. 1 Samuel 15, the Lord Almighty says, go, attack the Amalekites, totally destroy all that belongs to them, do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. These are tricky verses us to read and Christians have wrestled with this violence throughout our history way back in the second century um, AD when there was a chap called Marcion, 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 anyway he led a movement to reject the Old Testament because of some of this violence and it was a substantial enough movement that there were key church leaders who had to challenge it and put a stop to it, suppress it. More recently, I don't know if anybody's read Richard Dawkins' uh, God Delusion, but, but he describes God in that as arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it. 
vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, amongst other words that he uses to describe God. And this depiction of God is difficult to comprehend alongside passages in the Old Testament that talk about God being a God of peace. But how can that be true alongside this? And then, particularly alongside the person of Jesus. So how do we understand it? Three possible approaches, therefore. So the first thing that people very often do, and I think if we're honest, a lot of us have done at some point or perhaps continue to do, is to say, well, God must have changed. This God of the Old Testament is clearly not the same as the one of the New Testament. The Old Testament is frankly awkward, so we just sort of won't read it. It's just over there somewhere. It's a bit embarrassing. We focus on the nice New Testament and perhaps some of the twinkly Old Testament ones, verses that we read at Christmas. That stuff about light, it's all the nice bits. And we leave out the bits that are more difficult. I think a lot of us have done that, and it's probably quite a common approach. Now, there's not many absolute, solid, irrefutable facts that I can share with you this morning, so enjoy this one for what it's worth. There is one thing that the Bible is absolutely clear on. God doesn't change. So this might feel like a solution in our own minds, but it isn't something that we can back up with theology. Uh, Malachi 3, 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. This is something God is very clear about. And not only does God not change, but his plan, his purpose doesn't change. Hebrews 6, 17 says that God wants to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to us, the heirs of what was promised. This is actually so important. You know, in our world right now, there is so little that we can depend on as certain, as unchanging, as reliable, as trustworthy. Talking to particularly rising generations who are thinking about the future and just feel like everything is so risky and unreliable these days. God, we can trust. He doesn't change. And more importantly, his purpose, his plan does not change. You can hang on to that. God's covenant, his promise to the people, the promise spoken over all of creation is unbreakable. It didn't change. And we are living now under the sort of long-term promise that was made way back in the Old Testament that Jesus is part of. Jesus isn't some sort of part B, like, whoops, the Old Testament went wrong and that was a bit embarrassing, but we've started again with something much better. No, it's so important that we understand that there's this big story arc which Jesus is part of. And the, the glue that holds that together is the character and love of God that is consistent and reliable and plays through the whole thing. So if God doesn't change, the second possibility we need to explore is, are those stories accurate? When we read those things, are they actually, did they really happen the way that they were described? And there's three sort of contextual things that we need to understand when we're reading that Old Testament scripture. And the first thing is what's called canonical context. It's, it's the canon, the putting together of those old stories. And what we need to understand is how that was done in the Old Testament. So many of those stories were not written as historical accounts, not the way that we might write now. 
They were written often later by a people who'd been through war and capture and exile. They were broken, scattered, shattered as a people. And they wrote as they regathered stories that captured the deep truths of their ancestry, of their history, and of these promises that God had spoken over them that they could hold on to and depend on, even though it felt like their lives had fallen apart and been shaken and shattered in the worst way. These weren't people who read and wrote like we do now, Those stories had to be memorable, catching. Perhaps, actually, it wasn't about the historical detail. It was about the deep truths that people needed, not just to understand with their heads, but but sink into their hearts. So they used lots of mythology, lots of fable. They often adapted some of the famous fables that were around in other cultures of the time to tell a deep and important truth about God and about the story that they were part of. So when we look at the battle and the conquest language, a lot of scholars argue that what we've got there is an example of just that. This is a book written by a theologian called Helen Painter. She says, the book of Joshua, as one of those examples, is written in a highly stylized way. It's entirely consistent with the standard way that a conquest account was recorded in the Near East along with evident hyperbolic language. So what she's saying, and there are other experts and particular theologians, there's a book written by a couple of people called John and Harvey Walton, which also compared the Old Testament battle accounts with other similar accounts that were written in cultures of that time. And there's this practice of exaggerating, of clarifying, of emphasizing aspects of the story to teach a truth. This this army was the most powerful. This is the story that was playing out, uh, that this battle illustrates. And we see in comparisons of the Old Testament account with those other very similar uh, stories written at similar times, lots of similar, of the same sorts of patterns. So do we need to change the way that we're reading some of this Old Testament teaching? The thing is, none of this means it isn't true. Our, um, our sort of Western 21st century perspective can be a bit sniffy about things that aren't sort of strictly historical accuracy because we're so used to writing in that very methodical, scientific, rational, if you like, way. But these are just a different way to teach truths. The truths are still there. They're still solid and important. The second type of context we need to hold on to is the cultural context, therefore, that that world was much more violent than ours is now. You might be thinking, Osville's pretty violent, thank you very much. But in terms of the people's everyday experience, violence and conquest was much more part of their pattern of life. And it was seen, bizarrely to our perspective, as a good thing. You can see an example of this in 1 Samuel 18, talking about Saul and David. Saul, this ancient king, and David, the, the, the new kid on the block who was being raised by God, ultimately to replace Saul. And there's this song that they sing, the people sing about the two of them, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David tens of thousands. This was a culture, an era, when to be extra violent and kill lots of people was good PR. It's quite different to how we might want to tell a story now. 
And then, of course, there is the spiritual context. You know, the, the challenge to all cultures and ages and generations has always been and will always be understanding the deep things of God, hearing the voice of God over the cultural noise of whatever's going on at the time. And there is a question in the Old Testament of whether sometimes the people had misunderstood they thought they were doing what God would want them to do, but were they? We have to wrestle with this. Numbers 21.2, Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you deliver these people into our hands, we will completely destroy their cities. Could this be them coming from their cultural background where obviously that's what you did if you were the powerful people? Could they have misunderstood what God wanted them to do? Uh, theologian called Brian Zand, who's from America, he wrote a piece called Of God and Genocide, and he said this, what has changed is not God, but the degree to which humanity has attained an understanding of the true nature of God. Are we journeying and understanding God better? Does our dis-ease with that violence reflect actually that we are understanding God better as humanity journeys? But let's look at a third possibility, and it's one that, that for me is a framework that helps me to understand some of these tricky topics and stories. And it is the big story that the Bible is telling us, the story that we are all part of, hard though that may be to comprehend, the story that we are still journeying with as God's people in his creation. And it's a story that started in the beginning way back in the Bible. So if we look at the very beginning of our story, Genesis 1 verses 1 to 2 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God created our world out of this primitive chaos he hovered over the deep and brought order out of chaos, light, flourishing life, everything in perfect balance. And God, too, able to live and walk among his people. It's that picture in Eden of things exactly the way that God wanted them to be. But we know the story doesn't end there. Because of the desires of humanity, sin entered that beautiful picture. And it's like it's sort of sprayed graffiti over all the beauty and perfection that God had created. Because the force of chaos and evil was allowed back in. And we see something of that in the story that we've heard from Noah. Actually, if you go back to that story very, very quickly, as the people come out of Eden, you see violence enter the world. Cain and Abel, almost the first story that we come to is one of violence that's developed. But as that flows on, by the time you get to the story that we've heard this morning, in Genesis 6, verse 5, something dramatic and rather dark has happened. It says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. I mean, that's pretty grim. Every inclination, only evil, all of the time. That doesn't feel like a good day. Now, remember this Old Testament way of telling deep truths with fable, with mythology. 
When we read the story of Noah, the, the flood not only comes from the heavens, but in chapter 7, verse 11, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. Now, this is the same deep that God hovered over in the story of creation. These powerful mythologies that, that come up in some of these Old Testament stories are there to teach us something. When we take our eyes off the Lord, chaos bubbles up from within creation, destruction results, and often we see that in violence. You can see this in chapter 6, 13, which we, was one of the verses we heard at the beginning. But if you look at the original Hebrew and translate it very literally, this is what it says. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. This is God reflecting on the situation. The earth has become filled with violence, not because of God. God's dream was for peace and harmony, but humanity has filled the earth with violence. And this is so serious that what God says is that, that the end of all flesh has come. We're really close to a, a limit, catastrophe. God has to act. And again, we see God's heart because in this ancient story, after the flood, God's reflection is that even though every inclination of the human heart is evil, never again will I destroy all living creatures. We see God's heart for peace, his desire for harmony coming through, and an eternal plan then to solve this. And the Old Testament plays out, in brief, with this plan starting to unfold, God taking one man, Abraham, and one family that then becomes one nation. And, and lots of the language in that story shows us that this is, in effect, a kind of mini-creation, a recreation, an attempt to reform something of Eden in the midst of the chaos that humanity has brought. And so it's so important that that nation, as it grows, manages to stay unpolluted by this sin and chaos that, is, that so threatens God's great dream and desire of flourishing for people. And many of the stories that we read in the Old Testament repeat language that is about the way that nation was set apart, literally distanced from the rest of the cultures and, hum and human tribes and things that were playing out on the earth. This nation is different in order to enable God's presence to be among them, they have to be separated. And some of the stories where they have to wipe out other tribes repeat very much this language. Whether it's literal, whether it's mythology, there's something there that we need to understand. And of course, the, the story doesn't go well. The Old Testament is a story of tragedy because again and again what happens is the people cannot live by the, the rules and the rituals and the distance that they would be required to hold. And therefore, the gap between them and God does become bigger and bigger. And God's dream of being with them is broken. Not his promise, but the dream because of what humanity has done. And the Old Testament ends with these centuries of actual silence because the distance has become so big. But then, of course, Jesus is born. And what we see then is God's eternal solution 
this second promise that extends and fulfills the first so that it now extends to all people, but most importantly, doesn't depend on just humanity. Jesus is completely human, but also completely God. So he is able effectively to take upon himself the weight of all of that human-induced violence. Ultimately, Jesus' life culminates in an act of violence against him, a God of love willing to give everything in order to once and for all resolve this situation. There's a beautiful passage in Micah 5, which is an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, that says he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they will live securely then. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. What Jesus does in that moment finally resolves or promises the solution and a way for God's dream of peace to be the thing that dominates on the earth. Jesus teaches again and again, blessed are the peacemakers. He teaches us to hold peace. And if we have big questions about God, the New Testament tells us that we can find the answer in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like definitively, look at Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that in the past, God spoke to us through humans, through prophets, in many times and in various ways, mythology, history, all of these different ways. But now he has spoken to us through his son, who is the exact representation of his being. So when we look to Jesus and we see peace, we see reflected the desire, the dream, the heart of our father. So this is not an easy question that we're exploring this morning, but it is an essential question because it points to the very character of God, to his very dream for his creation, and ultimately to the promise that in the end, God will redeem his world. We will see peace. The end of the Bible, Revelation, talks of a time when there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more conflict, because God's way will be acted out on this earth. And this is such an essential question. There was a study that just came out last week that was saying that over half of people cite the violence in the Bible and the violence and conflict caused by religion as the main reason that they will not explore faith. So we need to talk about this. Our human violence has twisted God's story so far that now people think the violence actually came from God in the first place. God's heart is for peace. You don't need to look far to see how this violence is playing out. If you Google some of the comments made about the current violence in Palestine and Gaza, and you'll see people quoting and referencing some of these ancient stories in justification of what's happening now. Many of our other wars have been fought by armies who argued that their victory was promised and their battle was supported by God. We need to pray for peace. Psalm 34, verse 14, expresses beautifully God's heart and tells us what our response to this question should be. It says, seek peace and pursue it. So why don't we stand and just take a moment to pause, reflect, let some of this sink in. And um, I'm just going to pray for us before the band come back and we have 
some space to worship as we respond to this. But for now, you might just want to close your eyes or hold your hands out to the Lord as we rest and we wrestle with this, this amazing truth. God, who holds our world in his hands, holds us with love, and he desires to bring peace. Psalm 85 says this, Love and faithfulness meet together. In God, righteousness and peace kiss each other. So, Lord God, we hold this morning the mystery the challenge of violence, of conflict in a world we know you long to bring peace to. Lord God, help us to understand some of these deep mysteries. Help our hearts to reach for yours. May we understand your heart, your desire, the peace that you long to bring to your world. Help us to share that well with people who have been confused, who have heard your truth twisted, who reject religion and reject you because of these things that they've not been able to understand. Help us to communicate those well. But most of all, Lord God, may we be people of peace. We pray for the conflicts in this world. And we pray for people who believe their conflict to be justified. We pray wisdom. We pray your authority. We pray your peace to break out in this world. And we do say, Lord, have mercy. Redeem your world. Redeem us from human violence. In Jesus' name, amen.